This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au So I'll get into it. We're talking about radical justice and uh, the call to radical justice It can be, in some ways for the obvious reasons, confronting and challenging, but I think it can also at times be confusing. The confronting side of it is fairly obvious, and for me personally, my wife and I, we've been professional aid and humanitarian workers. It's confronting because we've stood in huge refugee camps in East Africa, which are the kind of containers of the very toughest parts of life and seen refugees without any hope and without any cause for knowing where their future is going. We've walked the red light districts of South Asian capital cities and seen and talked to women and girls and children stuck in the sex trafficking industry. We've been in remote parts of Nepal where famine has been striking and people don't have enough food. We've been there when the earthquake happened. We've seen the confronting sides of it and you've seen it as well. Whether you've seen it face to face or you've seen it on your news or you've seen it on Facebook, we know. We know how bad the world is and how bad it can be. And it's challenging. The call to radical justice is challenging because it implies that we would come out of our comfort zones. If we are doing it properly and heeding the call to radical justice properly, it will require us to come out of our comfort zones, out of what we know. We will become powerless when we're confronted with situations and contexts where we don't have all the answers. And that's a good thing, but it's a challenging thing. But it's also a confusing thing. And this is probably where we'll spend a bit of time today, maybe the most time. It's confusing for two reasons. It's confusing because of the swirling undercurrents that still exist in our church today that seem to suggest there's an internal struggle or battle within the church between those that believe and emphasize a social gospel and doing good works and doing justice and they're kind of in that camp and those who emphasize more of an evangelical gospel where it's about you know sharing and teaching God's word and proclaiming uh, the gospel through speech and teaching. And so it kind of suggests that there's almost a battle and that these two things are pitched against each other and then we can get left going, oh, which camp do I belong to and what am I meant to do? I don't want to do the wrong thing. It's also confusing for another reason and that's practically trying to work out, yes, there's the call to radical justice, but what does that mean for me in my life? You know, you think you already feel busy and tired and stressed and confused with options and the call to justice can just be another layer on top of that that leaves you going, not really sure how I fit in and what to do. So I'm going to kind of speak to some of that confusion, but also some of the goodness of the call and why it's so important we grapple with this, not just for ourselves, but for those in our world who are on the underside of unjust systems and those who don't know Jesus and the good news and the hope that he brings into that. So that's what we're going to do today. And we're going to do it by basically tracing the theme of biblical justice as commanded in the Old Testament books of the law, proclaimed by the prophets and then perfected in Jesus, in his life and his teachings and his resurrection. And then we're going to look at what it might mean for you right now, where you are, given your gifts, your skills, the context you find yourself in and how to find alignment to the calling of justice in your situation. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. God, we just thank you that you love us and you look after us. And I just thank you so much, Lord, for this church and the ministry of Anchor, Lord. I thank you that uh, yeah, you've brought us away at this time, Lord, to reflect on you, to reflect on your goodness and to reflect on your calling in our lives, God. And uh, retreats are a special time, Lord. It's a special time to be away from the normal uh, run of life, Lord God, and to consider deeply, Lord God, 
how you're calling us, how you're equipping us, how you're inspiring us afresh, Lord God. So I pray that in this workshop today, Lord, the words that I bring, Lord, would just be helpful to each and every single individual on their journey with you, figuring out what that looks like. And we just commit this time to you in your son's name. Amen. So one of the things that you will hear me emphasize today time and time again is that the call to radical justice does not mean you have to pack your bag and go overseas and become an aid worker. So that's a big part of my wife and I's story. And so our story and our pictures are kind of full of that. But truly, I believe the call to justice can take us into just about every, every profession and just about any context. So having established that, you can just kind of not feel that there's pressure on that front and I can still share some of my stories without uh, feeling like that's a frame that you have to take. But we have seen, as I said, some of the very worst situations and some of the most practical outworkings of injustice in this world. And this little video, um, which comes from a time when we used to have the time to make little videos before we ended up with two kids and another on the way, just shares a little bit of the journey my wife and I have had. So thank you. I mean, just indulging in a little family video. So putting aside the quality of it, it was just to give you a bit of a snapshot. But that's like I said, a lot of our stories involved going overseas and doing those things. And that's been great, but that is not just what the call to justice looks like. But it has given us some interesting insights into it. So I said that at the start, uh, apart from being confronting and also challenging, the call to radical justice can be confusing and that can stop so many of us stepping into what it is that God has called us to with that regards to his calling in our life. And uh, I think a lot of that comes, that confusion comes from our challenges of distinguishing between a biblical call to justice versus a secular understanding of it. And it's actually here that many talks by justice organizations or justice pastors or people like myself can actually sometimes make it harder, not easier, to un- engage and understand biblical justice. First of all, we can often kind of confront people with overwhelming statistics and crazy stories, and that just makes it hard in itself. But on top of that, there can also be some real mishandling of key and specific Bible verses that uh, can make it hard to understand the call to help the poor. And I don't think that comes out of a desire that is wrong. I think they're just so desperate to convince people that it is a strong part of the Bible, but in doing that can trip over um, some of the unpacking of those scriptures. It's scriptures like Luke chapter 4, where Jesus gets up and says, I've come to proclaim good news to the poor, which did have a practical physical side, but was also about a spiritual poverty and oppression that existed in Israel at the time. It's verses like uh, those in Matthew 25 that talk about the sheep and the goat, and you know, it is about helping the least of these, and that is what will kind of see you going into heaven or hell, and that can be confusing as well in the way that that's put and portrayed. And even Jesus Jesus' teachings on the Sermon on the Mount that declare who the blessed are. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are weak. And so in their rush to try and convince you, and I've done it and probably been guilty of it before in my eagerness, that we should help the poor, which isn't wrong. They can inadvertently make it sound like they think that such passages, even if they don't mean it, and even Jesus himself basically say that the materially poor or those experiencing oppression or those who try and help practically, that that is somehow what earns favour with Christ or even starts to earn our salvation. And to the ears of Bible-believing followers, such mishandling of such important scriptures can confusingly start to sound like a salvation by works mentality, which, you know, Martin Luther was supposed to have nullified 500 years 
years ago in the Reformation. And so I think the result has been in church history, and I see it today in the church in Australia, that you kind of have this separating out of the camps, like those who are kind of more justice and a little bit more left, and they can kind of get tarred as having like a focus on a social gospel, and those who are more kind of evangelical, and oh, it's about a focus on doctrine and the teaching and the evangelism of the word, and they can separate out in that way. And it's a real shame. It's an incredible shame because I think it leaves a lot of people confused who do want to do both things and think they should be able to. And it's a shame because when understood properly, the Bible weaves a beautiful vision for how it is precisely through God's overwhelming grace and His perfect salvation that we are to become and respond as the most selfless people, as the most self-sacrificing and as the most others-focused individuals on this earth. And uh, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 12, articulates this beautifully. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. And uh, Timothy Keller's book, Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just, provides a great treatment for those of you who want to look further into this idea. In it, he says that, for indeed, grace is the key to it all. It is not our lavish good deeds that procure salvation, but God's lavish love and mercy. That is why the poor are as acceptable before God as the rich. It is the generosity of God, the freeness of His salvation, that lays the foundation of the society for justice for all." So if we can establish that the Bible doesn't call us or kind of split us between, oh, is it about giving out bread or a Bible or evangelism or good works? The question then becomes, what more specifically does biblical justice look like in practice and how is it meant to transform society so that we can find our place in it? And for that, because we could spend so long on this, but I'm going to show a wonderful clip from the Bible Project that explores the biblical concept of justice uh, really, really well. So we're going to watch that together now. Mm, great video, isn't it? It's just, it's such a beautiful summary. And actually, it just makes you go, how incredible is the Bible? Like, how incredible is the plan and the narrative and the calling that God puts on our lives and, and weaves through history? And that's about the theme of justice. There are other themes in the Bible. It's not the only theme. But trace through, man, is it a strong theme? And man, does it bear us considering and responding to in our own lives? And, you know, it's a way that I found in my life that it's not just, uh, oh, I better do this because I have to. The, the deep sense of satisfaction and purpose and experience of God that has come through following His plans for justice is just unlike anything. Now, I remember um, after the, whilst I was on the ground in the Nepal earthquake and uh, so many uh, young people in particular and students that are kind of products of a postmodern education system uh, one of the biggest uh, objections to faith in Christ and the absolute claim of Jesus um, is, well, what about all the other religions and what about all the other suffering in this world and how can there be a God when there is so much pain and trauma and when there are things like earthquakes in Nepal? And I was there, like people were dead under the rubble 
And yet my experience of Christ and Christ there and present and amongst us had never been stronger. And I thought to myself, ah, of course, Jesus is absent from this place. He's here. This is where he is most primarily experienced. It feels closest to the surface as you sense his presence with the people stuck in the rubble, that he's there longing for them to be freed and rescued and actually longing for Christians to come and enter that space. And in many ways, I think I have to follow justice because that's where I get such strong experiences of Christ in my life because it calls you to step out in the faith in totally new and different ways than uh, what our society can and often does. It can make it quite hard here. And uh, it's, it's difficult and it's so interesting because if the call to justice is so compelling and so strong, why do we find so much trouble and difficulty expressing and experiencing that here in Australia through our lives and through the church? Because one of the things that we've been looking at with Micah, which is an organisation that takes its mandate from that verse of Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, uh, to do mercy and to walk humbly with God? And we've been thinking, what does that look like in Australia? And Tim Costello, who's the executive director now of Micah um, and kind of my boss and, and partner in all of this. So that's a very unequal partnership, as you can imagine, with Tim's experience and my own. But he basically said to me, and what he got, he, I wasn't looking for this job at all. And he called me up and said, oh, you should do this. And I thought, I don't know if this is for us, Tim. We've got another baby on the way. He said, oh, there's funding for 12 months. Who knows what will happen after that? But he basically said this. He said that, Um, whether we like it or not, brand church in Australia is in the trash, okay? And that may be unfair and that may be a result of an aggressive and hostile secular culture, but we've also played a role. And if you go out there and speak to the average Christian and even a lot of young Christians sitting in churches today, if you spoke to them, when they think of church, they think of child abusers, anti-gay out of touch and an institution desperate to protect itself. That is in some ways the public voice of the church and the public perception of the church. It is a long way from justice, mercy and humility. And the reason that matters is not so that we would do more good works, but when brand church is in the trash like that, it erodes our place to give that good, strong, prophetic witness to Jesus Christ and what he came to do and what he brings and promises to this society. So that is why it pays to try and revive what brand church looks like, sounds like, appears like in Australia. And so that's one of the things we're really passionate about at Micah. But we've lost our confidence and we've lost our calling and we've lost our voice in the public space. Um, which is so strange because we are the followers of this radical Jesus. You know, it was Christians who primarily fought for and won the battles on abolition out of the colonies back in the British Empire and other empires around the world. It was Christians who primarily led the fight for the civil rights movement in America. It was Christians who have been the ones to build countless schools, hospitals and hospices around thousands of poor countries where education and healthcare has often been lacking or restricted to certain people of certain castes and class. That was Christians. That is our Christian heritage. And yet we have so little confidence. And I think there's a few things, but one of them in particular is um, this fear that Christianity or being a Christian has become a minority position in our culture and that we as Christians are suddenly under attack and in the minority. And so our public voice, when it has been there, has tended to primarily focus on things that are affecting or that we perceive as deeply affecting us. 
So it's things like a public Christian voice on marriage or on sexuality or on scripture in schools. And all of those things are important. They are good things. They are things that should be debated and discussed, but we've lost our call and we're not seen as being others focused. We're seen as primarily being us focused. And John Dixon has a great analogy. He says public, uh, the public engagement of Christians in the public space should be like those huge high jump mats that you used to use in high school that um, like they're actually really hard to move. If you've, you have to get a few people to move it out to the field. But then when you jump over the bar and land on it and make contact, it's soft. And as we should be in our Christian public engagement, we should be firm in what we believe and strong in our foundations. But when people come up against us, we should be soft. The experience should be one of comfort, not of abrasion and prickliness and aggression, which is unfortunately what public voice and public justice for Christians has started to look like. So we just need to think this through. And I think... um, I think we want to. I think we want to do justice. And we'll talk about that specifically, what that might mean for you at the end. But I think that there are uh, four false gods making a strong resurgence in our world and in our Western society and even in our churches that make it difficult for us. And by naming them, we can disarm them and then work even when they are present, okay? So I just want to kind of call out what those four false gods are. And these, this is not from, uh, you know, it doesn't say there are these four false gods specifically in a verse in the Bible. It's just something thematically that I want to explore with you. I think our world is being torn apart and corrupted right now by the false gods of soil, the false gods of blood, the false gods of wealth, and the false god of me. The false god of soil, the false god of blood, the false gods of wealth, and the false god of me. And as I explain what I mean by that, I think probably you'll identify the first two as saying that you don't necessarily specifically individually struggle with, but that influence our broader society. But the second two, I think, are critical to our own struggles to face up to and follow radical justice in our world. So the God of soil. The God of soil is seen in this rising sentiment of nationalism that is sweeping our world right now. Like it is out of control. It's America first, China first, the EU first. The problem with that uh, rising sentiment of nationalism, which is the God of soil at work, is that it doesn't just stop at protectionist trade policies. Like that's just about economics and you can have different views on that. It's also making its way through into our plans for higher border walls, to keep others out, the demonization of certain migrant groups and minorities, the rejection of refugees and the locking of them up on islands outside of our own island, uh, the public degradation of entire countries and continents by loose-lipped presidents that should know better. I saw a post by a friend in America who has an adopted child from Haiti when President Trump made the remarks about certain s-hole countries that he wanted to keep out of America. And she had to have a conversation that night with her daughter uh, explaining why the president of her country would call her country of origin, her birth country, a S-hole country. It's crazy. That's the God of soil and the God of blood coming together perfectly to corrupt our culture and our view of the world. And then there's the God of wealth. And this is perhaps the most blatant one on display and ruling in our culture of consumption and our insatiable appetite for more. And you know this one. It's the drive for more money, the drive for more comfort, the drive for more experience, the drive for more of everything. And here's where it becomes incredibly murky in our churches, where such wealth and accumulation can be labelled as blessing. And that is where it gets tricky. And uh, pursuing it, accumulating it, can be talked of using the language of good stewardship. 
or being wise with our finances or following sound wisdom. And it's true, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with rich people. There can be plenty of rich Christians. I think the Bible has plenty of examples where rich benefactors are actually sowing into and supporting the ministry of Jesus in the early church. Money is not the problem, but there is a reason why Jesus spent so many times and focuses a fair bit of his teaching, a lot more than some other topics that we talk about, spelling out the dangers of money as a God that can pull us away from the true God. And I've even heard it said of late that if Jesus acted in a manner many Christian pastors and leaders in our Western churches preach and talk about, he would not have been executed by the powerful and elite of his time, he would have been exalted. And that's something to think about. If Jesus had taught and lived the way many of our churches talk and preach about him, would he have found himself executed by the elite and the powerful of the time or praised and elevated? It's a good question just to think about and use as a frame in your own thinking. Then there's the God of me. And this is the God responsible for sowing record levels of anxiety, stress and fear into our private lives. Because if you're living for yourself and you are constantly bound, you are constantly bound to not feeling good enough or to living in that constant state of comparison, to measuring yourself against others. You're bound to fear, you're bound to stress, you're bound to worry. And that again is a false God that robs us from our calling to Christ and our calling to others. And it's these gods that, uh, along with our own natural inclinations, steer us away from the call to radical justice. And uh, I was thinking about this as I was preparing this talk about these fears, the fear of failure, the fear of security, the fear of not having enough, of caring for my family, of being wise, of being radical, all of these fears that can swirl around from these false gods. And I was thinking of if my wife and I had listened to those fears in our own head and often also shared by well-meaning Christians who just loved us and were afraid to see us do some of the things we did. Uh, what would have happened and how our lives would have looked different if we listened to those fears. And I came up with our wouldn't have list, okay? This is just for us. It's just example. It's not law or, or what you should do. But this is a list of all the things we wouldn't have done if we'd listened to the voices of these fears, either of our own or in many instances of others. We wouldn't have worked with asylum seekers seeking refuge in Australia for several years and uh, moved into and opened up our home to serving and ministering with them. We wouldn't have gone and lived in Nepal as development workers for about two and a half years. We wouldn't have gone through the adoption process for our Zipporah, which I can't even imagine. So Zippy is our eldest daughter. We have um, several other, well, one other biological son and another on the way. But we really felt called and compelled to adoption and to adoption uh, in Ethiopia prior to moving to Nepal. That's why there's that weird overlap of Nepali uh, elderly ladies bouncing a Ethiopian little princess on their lap. But when we were going through the adoption process, people actually said to us, are you sure this is a good idea? Um, they said to us, what happens if you get your heart broken? What happens if you fall so in love with this child and then the adoption process doesn't go through? Now, that was well-meaning. They were looking out for us. They even said, what about, this is going to wipe you out financially. Adoption costs a lot of money. And I just thought, it's just remarkable. Like, I know the heart they were coming from, but actually they were voices that were making it harder to go through with that thing that we uh, felt God calling us to. And now everyone loves Zipporah. She's incredible. And they all love Zipporah and they couldn't imagine their lives without her. But the voices of fear, those false gods, can crowd out the call to justice in our lives. We wouldn't have been there to respond to the Nepal earthquake at the country's time of need and we wouldn't have stayed back for another six months in the aftermath rather than returning to Australia. 
Now, I wouldn't have taken a job at Compassion that I was eminently unqualified for, given the size of the team and the budget, and that if I was listening to the God of me, I would have freaked out about and just run a million miles from. And I wouldn't have accepted this job uh, with Micah when I've left a well-paid permanent role, our third baby's on the way, to this job that has 12 months of funding and who knows what else happens after that. I could end up, you know, without a job. And in all of these decisions, have they been risky? Yes. Dangerous? Physically? Probably. Like you saw some of those bus trips in Nepal. Foolish? And I could certainly see how it could look that way to some. But do I have absolute confidence that God has it in his control and despite no way of predicting how any of those things would have turned out that he had us through it all? Of course I do. And basically what happens is when you start to take risks and practice faith and radical justice, it's like a muscle. It just kind of starts to develop over time and it becomes stronger. And athletes who train their bodies for, you know, elite athletic endeavors which I think you guys are doing some of this afternoon, or surgeons who kind of work in fine surgeries and have to get that, uh, those muscles finely tuned. They develop something called muscle memory, which is basically to the point where you don't have to think about your muscles doing it. You just do it. It's just a response. And the call to biblical justice needs to become like that, like muscle memory. We are Christians. Therefore, when we see situations of injustice, oppression, inequality, unfairness, yes, it's confusing. Yes, it's confronting. Yes, we might have questions, but we respond or we look for ways to respond or to partner with people who are responding. It just becomes a natural part of our faith. That's where we need to get to. <clears throat> so I'm going to, we start a little bit late and I don't want to kind of run over time. So I'm going to, I'm going to briefly touch on a section which I would have liked to go into further because I want to get to some of the practical outworkings to what this looks like for you. Because I think you can tell my heart is to explain these things to you through a biblical framework. And so I don't want to rush over it, but I do want to get to some of my practical advice on some of these things. But I just wanted to draw your attention first to a passage of Scripture found in John chapter 15, verses 15 to 17. Because the answer to this in my life and in uh, the life of my wife and I has always been returning to Jesus to figure out our foundations in this calling when everything is swirling and those fears are starting to overwhelm us. And in John 15, it says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Because from this passage and the context surrounding it in the book of John, we can quickly establish three key things that help us fight back those fears and fight back those false gods. First of all, we can see that it is Jesus who calls us. We don't do it ourselves. All right, look in verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. He calls us and he equips us. Secondly, we are called not for our own benefit, but to produce good fruit. And not just any fruit, but good fruit that will last, which, which means the call to biblical justice can't be driven off emotional highs or flash-in-the-pan actions. It's not about quickly giving a bit of money to this or quickly signing this petition. It's about actually going through the work of formation, like I said, building up that muscle memory so that you know how to respond instinctively to forms of injustice all around you, okay? Wherever you are in any workplace. And finally, we see from this passage that it is good fruit rooted in love. So we called by God, yes, to produce good works and help others, yes. But it's not some dry religious task or game of cosmic karma. 
And it has this idea of understanding that is rooted in love has significant implications for the kinds of work and the callings with which we can outwork biblical justice in through our own lives. Because love and good works isn't restricted to pastors. It isn't restricted to overseas missionaries or aid workers. It isn't even reserved for doctors, teachers or lawyers. Because good works done in love, because justice is just about the restoration of things that are broken. And you know what love is. Good works done in love can find itself outworked in any context and just about any profession. As long as love is the instigator and the receiving of love from Jesus is our motivator and the experience and reward of his love in our, and grace is our reward, we will be on the right track. You don't have to stress too much about what job you do, who you give to, where you go in the world. Just follow the basic principles. But we are prone to forget. And so in our house, we have the banner. And this is just the last photo. And as that's coming up, I'll just explain a little bit about the banner. My wife actually led our family into this. She was at a conference. And at the conference, the uh, pastor challenged them to think about the values that define their household. And she came back to me and she said, and I was thinking about it. And I think that in our house... We are defined by the values as we understand God's call in our family and our life, the values of taking risks, loving others and having fun. And we took it a little bit further and we thought, who is it specifically that we feel called to with our mix of experiences, the way that God has wired us, the context that we find ourselves in? And we tend to generally find that we are drawn to helping and keeping a specific eye out for the little ones, so children who are in need, Worn-out mums, they're the single mums who are doing it tough and really just have such an incredible job before them and do such amazing work, and the newly arrived refugees. So that's who we felt called to, and the reason why is Jesus. And we've got a favourite verse of ours down. Now, that banner is in many ways our family's own prophetic vision and own kind of prophetic response to the two golden commandments Jesus gives when asked, what is the most important thing I'm meant to do by an expert in the law? And he's asking for one answer, but as we know, Jesus gives two in Mark chapter 12. He says, of all the commandments, which is most important, Jesus says this, the most important one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. And so we have this call to Jesus, love God, love others. We see it repeated by the prophets, by the prophets' words in uh, Micah 6.8. What does it look like to follow God? Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And this banner, it's not law, it's not gospel, it's not doctrine, it's not more important than the Bible, but it helps us as a family and in our own individual lives develop a prophetic vision for what God is calling us to. And it's incredibly helpful because it's a reminder I can't tell you the amount of times we've had important decisions to make and I've looked at that banner and just gone, that's right, that's who we are. We love God. We take risks. That's what we do. Not you necessarily, but that's what we do. And we know that it always has kind of led to what God has asked us to do. And it reminds us not just in the hard times when you're asking questions, it actually reminds us in the times that are easy, too easy, so easy, so joyful, so fun, so comfortable that you actually forget the importance of the prophetic call to justice and to following Christ, which we have articulated in that banner for us. And really today, I just want to leave you with two challenges. I want to challenge you guys to kind of go through the process of creating your own banner. It's a simple, but it's a powerful process. And I say this about it. We spend so much time in our lives planning things. We plan projects at work. We plan 
um, projects for our home. So if we're going to spend like an hour planning out our deck and going to Bunnings and researching and figuring it all out, why wouldn't we plan some time to think intentionally about designing our life the way that God might be asking us to? Not moving past just, okay, what we believe, but actually designing our life, the way we spend our time and our money and our effort. What do we value the most? How has he called us? Who has he called us to? And you might think that's, an, that's a confronting task, Matt. I wish you'd spent more time helping me through that today. But if we are in communion with God and we are in relationship with him, in worship, in a community uh, like this one, reading his word, I think we know. I think we know. I think we start to get a feel for how he has called us for who he has called us to, what gets us amped up or angry or excited or happy. And I think having broken down the confusion about biblical justice and is it giving out bread or Bibles or do I have to go overseas or not, you should find a freedom just to find in your own words, who is God calling me to? How has he wired me? And take some time to design that into your life so that you would actually pursue it. And if it helps, create something like a banner. In our church tradition, we've gone a long way away from having symbols. We don't like huge crosses and statues and candles and this, that and the other. But those things actually serve a very important role in Orthodox churches. They help people remember. They help people to bring them back to spiritual disciplines. They help to recover and remember the prophetic vision and calling in their life. They can be good things. Find what that is for you. It's, it's very practical. In some ways, it's a very easy answer. How do you follow radical justice? Make a banner. Put something on your wrist. But it's helpful. I think it's helpful. And uh, through doing that with Christ, I think you'll find a lot of answers. And finally, so that's the kind of call to, the deep call to personal formation, personal justice formation. And an, another great resource in that, if you're really getting interested in this, is a, uh, a course and a resource offered by a group called Seed. And John Beckett runs that. And he's at Northside Baptist Church, quite close to you guys. So just write that down if you're thinking, I'd like more help. He has a course that works you through and has tools and advice and videos um, that work you through finding alignment and that calling in your life, if you want to spend more time there. Personal formation. Then Micah is also here in Australia to help us to think about what it looks like to take a more public stance on these justice issues as the church and in your own life. And Micah's focus, if you've ever come into contact or seen it before, has primarily been on foreign aid and advocating for an increased foreign aid budget. And, um, and that's fine. Like foreign aid is in a lot of ways a way that we can demonstrate um, Australia being a good and generous neighbour. And we should be asking our leaders to do that. And it does stand that right now in 2018, we are at the lowest level ever as a nation in terms of our generosity to other countries. We give um, about 22 cents in every $100 to foreign aid. People think on the street, if you ask them, how much do you reckon we give to foreign aid to those poor people overseas? Oh, I don't know, probably $15 or $20 out of every $100. Um, and even those who are more conservative might say, oh, seven or eight, but actually it's 0.22 of 1%, 22 cents in $100 goes overseas to help the poor. It's a tiny, tiny amount. And um, we are advocating and saying, do you know what, that's not really good enough for a country that's as wealthy as ours, that has um, pretty good levels of of debt and saving ratios. So we're talking about that because that's been our legacy and our history. And right now, MICA is still primarily funded by Christian NGOs who do international development work. But Tim and I, with the board's blessing, are looking to take that in a broader direction, to be a voice and to provide leadership on any justice in society that requires Christians move in with a voice for justice, mercy, and humility, so that 
we can start to restore Brand Church so that, not that we look good, that God can be glorified and that people would be drawn to Him. And uh, you can join us practically in that by going to the website and signing up online and you'll start to get the communications when I start to figure out what to write in them and how to send emails. You might start to get something. But one practical thing that um, would apply to a lot of you, and this gives you a feel for the kinds of things that we're doing. The uh, budget is coming up. It gets announced on the second Tuesday of May every year. I think that's the 7th and 8th. I think it's about the 7th of May this year, but you can look in your diary. And Tim and I were thinking, what could we do to give a public voice to show what Christians care about when it comes to the budget. And we thought to ourselves, you know, if, even if Tim goes down there with his high profile, there's a million like older white guys and CEOs trying to get on camera that day and share their thing. And we thought, what would it look like if we took um, a group of 30, 50, 80, I don't know how many come, 100 young professional Christians who've taken time out of their day job, go down on budget night, on budget night itself, worship together, pray together, have talks from other people that in, uh, kind of bring us together and can inspire us. And then the morning after the budget is delivered, when everyone is trying to give their analysis and make their claim and put forward their idea and their vision for society, what if we just had a group of uh, young Christian professionals from different denominations and different professional backgrounds just standing on Parliament lawn with something like a sign that said, you think we just care about good coffee and smashed avocado on toast. Actually, we care for the poor. And they, we asked the media and they would come up to us and uh, just say, what are you guys doing? And just say, well, I'm a Christian lawyer and I believe actually, you know, our justice system isn't cut out to look after those who are poorest and those who are experiencing cycles of poverty and violence in their families. Or I'm a Christian doctor and, you know, that we should send more aid to those countries that have appalling healthcare systems where women don't get access to safe birthing. That's what I think. And we're not angry and we're not aggressive, but we are making it clear that there are Christians in this country who care about these issues and gently and through love and a little bit subversively because we have planned it and we're there. And the cameras that are all there for the Today Show and Sunrise, and they're all there, they turn, you know, 45 degrees and they get another great story. And they will pick up on that, I'm sure of it. But it requires us going and us stepping into that and taking that risk. So that's another practical thing that you could actually do. And other details for that will be available shortly. So thank you for taking the time to listen. It's an absolute pleasure to come and speak to you guys about these things. And I'm just going to pray um, over us as we finish today and move on with the rest of your program. God, we just thank you that you love us and you look after us and um, you're just such a blessing to us, Lord. Knowing you uh, has no rival, God, and following your call to justice, uh, to mercy, to walking humbly uh, just brings us unprecedented freedom and blessing and satisfaction and purpose in our lives, Lord God, following your call in this world. And I just pray that Today, Lord God, that in uh, each and every single one of our hearts, Lord, we're just feeling prompted and stirred to come closer in a relationship with you, closer into your narrative for this world, Lord God, that has so many themes, but justice being an important and critical one of those, Lord God. And I pray that you just help us process the call in each of our own lives individually, Lord, not in comparison to others or in comparison to what I've shared, but in the way that you've made us, where you've placed us, the opportunities before us. And Lord God, I just pray over these guys that as they do that, it would be an experience of searching, Lord, but not one of struggle and an experience of seeking you out, Lord God, but not one that ag- 
adds to anxiety or fear, Lord God, but that would, they would find increasing freedom and confidence in you. And we pray that as the church, Lord God, in Australia, and as a, a, a large group of, of, of active young Christians in an urban setting like Anchor is, Lord God, that we would give a good witness to your name, Lord God, for the sake of your kingdom and to your glory. And we just thank you for this time together and pray over the rest of this weekend. Amen.